Hi, everybody. This is George Heffler, and you're listening to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And we're talking with Sarah Burton today. How's it going, Sarah? Going pretty well. How about you? It's going great over here. Now, Sarah is one of my really good friends, and we have known each other since college, and we've sat through many movies together. <laughs> but she has pretty wide taste. She's not, she, I know a lot of people who are into horror are like pretty sh- strictly horror, and everything else just sort of falls by the wayside. But Sarah has a very wide variety of tastes. So I'm curious about how it is that you came to horror and sort of what your relationship with it is. If it's more of like just a passing fandom and there are certain movies that you really like, or if you sort of like the whole genre and, you know, just what's your relationship with horror like? So it actually took me a while to decide I liked horror. I was kind of a wuss as a kid and didn't encounter my first horror movie until seventh grade. And I didn't really want to encounter it then, but it was at somebody's birthday party and someone put on The Ring. And okay, maybe that's not the best horror movie out there. Certainly not what we're talking about today. But I was not prepared for that first look at the girl who dies at the beginning and her face. It freaked me out. I know people laugh at it, but seventh grade me was not having it. So it actually... The movie we're going to talk about today is one of the first movies that I cycled back to and went, oh... Maybe I can like horror. And when I came back to it in film school, that's what I went to college for, started looking at it from more of a technical aspect and having grown up a little bit and being a little bit less of a wuss, I started finding that I liked that sensation of something just out of the corner of your eye, the unknown that may be a little bit dangerous or a lot dangerous. And then I started exploring horror more in interactive mediums like video games, got into the Silent Hill franchise. And I'm really into like that unsettling feeling or the things that man was not meant to know. Yeah, I know that you're really into sort of the Cthulhu mythos, a lot of that elder god sort of stuff. Sarah and I actually played through the game Until Dawn together with her husband, Chris, who was on our very first episode. And we had a great time. It was very scary. (laughs) We were (laughs) jumping on the couch. We Um, screamed a bunch. I don't remember if you did, but I screamed. (laughs) I, I might have let out a whimper or two, maybe not a full scream, but it's a it's a pretty spooky game. Now, I know that you said that your first introduction to horror was The Ring. Did that sort of scare you off of those like supernatural kind of ones? Like what is your favorite subgenre of horror? So what I'm really into, I have an overactive imagination. So I am far more impacted by the horror that you don't see. Like, watching The Ring later as I became functional enough to watch it, I was really into the investigation aspect and the what's going on, because my mind went in all sorts of directions. And I find I scare myself more than most things can scare me. So I'm much more into the subtler horror, although, you know, the classics. I'm going back through some of those and finding a love for them as well. That's awesome. It's funny, I totally agree with you that a lot of times what you don't see is way more scary than what you do see which is why in a lot of those b movies of the past they spent so much money uh, and budget on the costume or whatever and so they're like well we got to use it as much as we can we got to put this thing in as many scenes as possible but the less you see of of the villain the scarier it is because your mind sort of fills in the gaps and I think that that's really effective for covering up lack of budget in a lot of movies. 
I agree. And I also am drawn to the things that are just a little unsettling. One of the reasons I like Silent Hill so much is that things moving oddly freak me out. (laughs) And you get a lot of that in Silent Hill. You sure do. I say I love it, but I also go curling up on the couch going, nope, nope, nope. (laughs) That's that's really funny. Well, they are great games, to be sure. And things definitely move in an unsettling fashion. I mean, the, the nurses, the way that they, like, jerk around while they're chasing you is really... It's it's intense. And those um, things that come out from under the cars. I hate those. Oh, yeah. Those are, those are rough, too. So the movie that we're talking about today is 2012's The Cabin in the Woods, directed by Drew Goddard and written by Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon. Now, this came out in 2012, but it was actually written several years before. It was being produced by MGM, but they went bankrupt, right? Like, basically right after this movie was completely finished. So it just got put on a shelf until Lionsgate came by and loved it and convinced them that Lionsgate was the right people to put it out. And so several years later, it got put out. One thing that's really interesting to me, Sarah, is that this is similar to Scream in that it's very much sort of a meta-commentary on horror in general. And... I know that a lot of people, they say that a meta-commentary movie can be really good, but is it possible for it to be the best example of the genre that it's commentating on? And so I'm wondering how you would respond to that. Hmm. In addition to being a meta-commentary on the genre itself, and you see a lot of the tropes, it's taking them one step further, and in addition to using them and commenting on it, is adding its own horror movie on top of the commentary. So by the time you get to the end of the movie, it's why our horror movies are the way they are and treating horror movies as this piece of culture that I find really interesting. Plus, you do get a solid scare by the end, I think. Especially in my unsettling man was not meant to know uh, category. I, I think that also, that's a great reason. I also have a big soft spot for this movie, it being one of the first horror movies that really drew me in and right. hit kind of all my right buttons for it. Yeah, I, I also, I should mention to our audience that I've mentioned a couple times that I sort of got scared off of the genre for a while. And this was, for me also, the first movie I would say that really kind of got me back into it. I would, I think that... The Friday the 13th franchise was the first one that I like sat through and watched the whole thing and and sort of appreciated it on as classics and sort of seeing where horror came from. But The Cabin in the Woods was one of the first movies that I sat through and sat through the whole thing and enjoyed as a horror movie. I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that it is extremely funny and Prior to being able to watch horror movies, I really enjoyed reading about them and sort of being able to have this meta commentary level and being able to say like, oh, well, they're also just kind of analyzing this. They're, they're talking about why these things happen and how they happen and the tropes that I've gotten to know just from reading about these horror movies. And so being able to kind of put myself from that perspective made it a little easier to watch it as someone who was a coward. <laughs> so I think that that's really important that this is not, I'm clearly not the only one. You've mentioned that this was the same thing for you. I bet that it's the same way for a lot of people, that this was sort of their first horror movie and, and it's a great gateway. Because while it is meta and there's a lot of references to other horror, you don't need to know what any of them are yeah. to get through it. 
yeah, it's definitely something you can come back to and kind of pick through and be like, oh, now that I've watched more horror, I kind of recognize these things, or I understand where this trope is is uh, coming from and what it's referencing. So it's definitely a movie that I think gets better as you watch it more and more. Mm-hmm. For those of you who aren't familiar with the movie, Cabin in the Woods is about five teenagers head off for a weekend at a secluded cabin in the woods. They arrive to find they are quite isolated with no means of communicating with the outside world. When the cellar door flings open, they go down to investigate and things sort of take off from there. Now, this is about as basic of a plot as you could possibly get. It's very bare bones, but I think that that's a positive thing for this movie because it really lets you kind of not worry about that part of it too much. It lets you kind of enjoy the rest of what's coming a little more without having to be like, oh, they have this huge, uh, crazy setup because there, there's other stuff happening around this sort of vacation in the cabin in the woods sort of thing that that's the real story of what's happening. And so by having this well-worn territory, it kind of puts you in the mindset of, I understand what's going to happen, but then they're able to subvert that in a way that still moves the story forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie starts off and it's the production credits are uh, images of sacrifice throughout the years in blood. So you have what looks like a Mayan sacrifice, all different sacrifices throughout various cultures. And one thing that's really interesting is that I listened to the commentary for this movie uh, the other day just to kind of hear what Joss and Drew Goddard had to say for themselves. <laughs> yeah. and, oh, God, I have opinions about Joss Whedon, but we need a yeah. whole podcast for those. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that, that that's uh, definitely would take more than the, <laughs> the time we have here. I feel the need to say that even though I've picked this movie, I have opinions about Joss Whedon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he uh, and those opinions are very merited. I've heard them before. And he. Look, he, he's not perfect, but he knows how to write a pretty good movie. So. Yeah. What they had to say was that they were originally using fake blood for this, but it wouldn't reflect the images that they wanted. It, like, it didn't have the right glint. So it's actually uh, superheated chocolate is <laughs> what the production credits are over. So you, you have these images of sacrifice, and it's perhaps not the most subtle thing I've ever seen. But it really sort of puts you in that mindset of uh, like, okay, it's about sacrifice. It's I understand kind of what this is leading up to. But then it's a hard cut to coffee in a break. And it's just these two scientist looking guys just chatting away with the most inane conversation about baby proofing their cabinets and how he can't get into it. This hard cut and immediate sort of subversion it throws you the other way where you thought you understood where this movie was going but now you're like oh i i see that this is going to in fact be sort of the opposite of what i thought and that everything that i think that i know about the way that a horror movie goes i can't necessarily count on that anymore Mm -hmm. now these two people who are having this inane conversation are the engineers citizen and hadley portrayed by Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford, two of the who's who Hall of Fame first ballot members of the I know that guy, but don't know their names. (laughs) 
they're both great character actors, and they they have a certain level of prestige that isn't always found in horror movies, which I think is really interesting, especially compared to the five the five teenagers that we'll be seeing, which are Dana, portrayed by Kristen Connolly, Kurt, portrayed by Chris Hemsworth. This is actually one of his very first movie roles, especially since it was filmed three to four years before it actually came out. So this is really a young Chris Hemsworth. Pre-Thor. <laughs> yes, pre-Thor. Anna Hutchinson, who plays Jules. Fran Kranz, who plays Marty. and One of Joss Whedon's, like, three actors. Jesse Williams, who plays Holden. And Jesse has also sort of gone on to a little more fame, similar to Chris Hemsworth. But these are certainly not, besides Chris Hemsworth, are not necessarily actors that are at the same level as Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford. You see these people and you understand that these are not going to be just throwaway characters. They've got these great character actors who bring a lot to every role that they're in. And you sort of understand that just because they're having this sort of dumb, boring conversation doesn't mean that you should count them out. I'm curious what you think about sort of this immediate switch. Where, like, Do you remember the first time you saw it? Well, did it shock you? Were you sort of like, uh, am I in the wrong movie? Um. Well, I knew I wasn't in the wrong movie because I'd put it on, I think, on Netflix. I didn't see this in theaters. But it was definitely a, okay, this is not, we're not in a cabin in a woods. We're in the office. And I'm interested at some point in talking about sort of my thought process through this side of the plot. Mm -hmm. Because this side of the plot is actually the reason I picked this movie. Because I'm fascinated by this whole office scenario. Yeah, it's really great. They're having this boring conversation, but... It goes back the other way, and it kind of meets in the middle. The The whiplash sort of settles out, and they're driving in a golf cart, and then there's a scream, and the title, Cabin in the Woods, appears in bright red lettering. And it seems to sort of say, whatever you think you're ready for, you're not. <laughs> strap in. They're in a golf cart. <laughs> you better strap in, too. It, it doesn't feel like a horror movie opening. No. But it, it sort of wavers back and forth in a way that makes you feel like, well, it could be. We know something's going on here. Something's weird. Don't know what it is yet. Let's find out. Yeah. I also, I want to mention that there's something I was thinking about as I was watching this. In the first five minutes, there's two references that I wonder how long they'll sort of hold up for. This is, it's a very smart movie. It's written very sharply as Joss Whedon's stuff typically is. A lot of people complain that his, uh, his writing is in fact too clever and that everybody is super quippy and that it, it doesn't necessarily work. It feels unrealistic that people would be this clever all the time. But I, I think that it sort of works. As we mentioned, this is sort of a meta commentary. It works a lot better for meta commentary than it does for a normal movie because mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense that these characters would be as smart and are commentating on stuff. It really reminds me a lot of in Scream, you have your uh, Randy character who is sort of the bringer of knowledge about the rules of horror. And that same sort of like overly clever character is something that Joss is really known for. Mm-hmm. So there's these two references In the first five minutes, there's uh, an Avis We Try Harder reference, which is a reference to their commercial where they were second most rated car rental place. And so they they said that they try harder because they're number two. 
And there's also the anti-drug PSA from, I want to say, uh, like 1987, I think I, I was reading, where it's the I learned it from watching you, which is something that I think more people know from references to it than from actually seeing the PSA. Yeah, I think I know it from the references. I just was wondering, like, do you think that this will that these will these will still be things that people know in five years, in 10 years? Like, uh, is this something that you already sort of see falling out of the public consciousness? Is it going to impact this movie in a negative way moving forward? Well, considering that the Avis one is something I didn't get, this is the first time I am thinking of this reference ever. Oh. Um, I don't think it's a problem. <laughs> oh, well, perfect. Good, good on you then, Joss. Um, one other thing, we see this office setting and then it goes smash cut to Dana is in her room getting dressed. She's packing for a trip and she's quickly gathered by the rest of her friends. They said that they're going to spend the weekend in a uh, deserted cabin that is owned by Kurt's cousin. And so they're all hanging out, getting ready to go. And they all sort of seem to fall into these tropes, but in a very mild way to start. Yeah, paying um, attention to them on this watch through, because you get Kurt who immediately starts, you know, he's got a little bit of the jock going on. He's Chris Hemsworth. He's pretty, whatever. But he's giving Dana advice on her textbooks and on passing this class. And he knows what's going on. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Because as we get through this movie, we'll find that this disappears. Mm-hmm. They, on to who these people are in these few minutes before the movie really starts kind of changes your maybe not your perspective but gives another layer to what's going on behind the scenes yeah absolutely they have just a couple minutes to establish who these people are so that we can see them change as the movie goes on and it's uh, frankly i found it very impressive that they're able to develop these characters very quickly that's something that's really hard not just for horror but for any movie and for them to have to establish these characters and then quickly be able to change them is impressive to me and i think you're right like uh especially with kurt later on they say that he has a full academic scholarship as a sociology major everyone is relatively smart you have marty who shows (laughs) up with a huge bong it's a it's he drives up and and he's smoking out of this bong and kurt's mad about how you can't bring that into my dad's van Um, and it telescopes (laughs) into a very fun little coffee mug and if I remember correctly, that's actually both a functional coffee mug and a functional bong. And they were very yes. proud of themselves. They sure were. Yeah, they they mentioned that it cost them $5,000 to develop that thing, <laughs> which is very pricey. But you know what? It, when you commit to it, it looks great. It really yeah. does. It's also really fun. And like I said, it sort of establishes characters in a goofy way. You see Marty, you understand what he's all about. He is high as hell from the minute we see him. He, his One of his first lines is, uh, Mina, you fetching minx, do you have any food? <laughs> and it really made me laugh. He also, at the beginning, establishes himself as sort of the outsider of the group and also the one who is the most suspicious, I would say, just in general. He talks mm-hmm. about how how society needs to crumble because people are too sort of set in their ways and everything. And at first you're, you're like, all right, this is just uh, the conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory guy who's Some high guy rambling around, whatever. Yes. 
exactly. But as you find out later, he's not too far off. He's not and wrong. Meanwhile, as we're establishing these characters, we go back to Sitterson and Hadley. It seems like they're moving the characters towards this cabin. They have people in Dana's house who are talking about how they're on the move and they like they have them in their sights. Jules talks about how she recently dyed her hair and then we hear one of the scientists say that the way that they're sort of lowering her cognition <laughs> is a fancy way of making her stupider is through the hair dye. And so you understand that these people are, they're not really in control of what's happening to them, despite the fact that they're like, oh, we're going on this fun trip. You wonder how much of it is even really their idea. They are driving towards this cabin. As we said, they're sort of being shuffled along and they stop at a gas station. Now, this gas station is another sort of classic trope. There's the creepy gas station owner. It's very run down. It reminds me a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and especially because the gas station owner in this movie says, did you come here uninvited? And it's really reminiscent of in Texas Chainsaw when the gas station owner says it's not smart to go nosing around in other people's properties. So I imagine that that's on purpose. They seem to be huge horror fans. A lot of this movie is sort of gives you that vibe of by horror fans for horror fans. And I think that's sort of part and parcel with these meta commentary ones where they sort of expect you to come in with at least a cursory knowledge of what's happening or, or these references. And if you don't have that, the movie will only get increasingly better the more knowledge that you bring to the movie as you come back to it. It's like I haven't seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so that reference flew over my head. But I'm, you know, I'm aware of the person at the beginning who warns the teenagers to go away, you're being stupid. Right. As the trope, but not necessarily the specific reference. Exactly. Going back to why I think the movie works is that you don't always have to know what's going on in the references to enjoy Mm -hmm. it being a movie. Yeah, absolutely. They get their gas. It's uh, one thing that really I think is interesting is that. Obviously, this gas station owner is very creepy. He's very rude. And he calls Jules uh, a whore. Mm -hmm. And I truly, I've seen this movie probably five or six times now. And it only just clicked to me that later on when they're talking about how each of them is meant to fulfill sort of like a character trope, that she is the whore is like the name of her it's basically her title her archetype yes and so when he calls her that every other time i was just like oh he's just being an asshole (laughs) no it's like he's literally like addressing her by her title basically and that it literally had never clicked for me until this time through we are sort of bouncing back and forth between these characters and the the laboratory in a really interesting way, because every time you see uh, something start to feel a little off or feel a little creepy, you kind of get lulled back down with some comedy and with some, like, j- just, I don't want to say a name conversation again, because they are talking about interesting stuff, but it's very mellow. It seems very matter of fact. They're, They're doing their jobs. Yeah, exactly. And at this and, point, they've referenced, I think, like, the guy upstairs a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember my first time watching this movie, I was still trying to figure out what was going on. And I was like, are they working for some 
rich weirdo who wants to watch people murdered. What is going on? Who are they working for? Yeah, it feels like, like a reality show. It's like, we're going to a cabin. Obviously, they're all going to die. I, you know, they're interesting. I like their characters, but I get that. I understand that. What's going on over here? Right. And so they, they give you just enough to, to really kind of tease your interest a little bit before putting you back to the more typical horror scenario. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that does a really good job of keeping you invested in the story, despite, like I said, this sort of A plot being a little bit more basic. As they're going towards the cabin again, they've, they've gotten their gas, they're heading back, they're driving through a mountain, and they go through a tunnel, and there's this beautiful sort of wide shot of them driving on the other side of it, and we see this eagle flying by. And it feels very much like it's going to be the sort of shot that is used to establish their isolation in a way that's just like, oh, look at how deserted the area is and how much forest is around them. And it's going to continue to pull out. But instead, this eagle flies into an invisible wall and gets electrocuted and just drops. And it's another sort of shocking moment where you're like, oh, they are still isolated but it's because they're trapped in here it's not because of just like natural isolation in the forest everything has been planned up to this moment there's a huge invisible wall this is not something that just happens by accident this isn't your standard cabin movie (laughs) yes as they're driving we cut back to the office workers who are betting on how these teens are going to die And uh, it's a very funny scene, but it's very morbid as well. There's a huge list of who it could possibly be. There's a bunch of people who are more classically horror icons. There's a lot of stuff that was made just for this. Some of the things on the list that are possible ways that they could die are witches, sexy witches, which is a separate category, (laughs) hell lord, which is a reference to Hellraiser. Angry Molesting Tree, which is an Evil Dead reference. Deadites, which is, I would say, like, half Evil Dead reference and half Army of Darkness reference, because Deadites are mentioned in Evil Dead 2, but they're not really in it until Army of Darkness, which is the third in that series. There's the Dolls, which they look like a reference to the Strangers, but this movie was, I'm not sure if it had, it was, like, being filmed right around the time that The Strangers came out, so I'm not sure that it's possible that uh, they could have been referencing that, but it certainly looks like them. And then there's Kevin. Uh, Just the name Kevin is on the board. I still want to know what Kevin is. Well, you're about to find out. Kevin is a reference to Sin City. It's Elijah Wood's character, who is a serial killer who is permanently yellow, and he smells, and he's gross. And it's it's a very specific reference to something that's not necessarily horror. It's certainly a dark movie and and comic book, but I, I don't know that I would call it horror. So it's it's nice to see that they're sort of referencing not just the one thing. They have more tricks in the bag than that. In today's day and age, it could also now have a secondary reference to the film. We need to talk about Kevin. So it, it it's only getting more referency. <laughs> And then there is, of course, mermaids. Yes, the mermaids and mermen and Sitterton. 
is very excited about the mermen. He's clearly wanted the mermen to be the winners for a long time. <laughs> Meanwhile, the teens have arrived at the cabin. It's very Evil Dead. This uh, the Evil Dead clearly had a big impact on both of these writers as they were uh, as they were doing this. It's clear that they like that movie a lot because not only is the cabin very Evil Dead. There's Cellar that is a huge part of the plot that is also very Evil Dead. Just a lot of stuff that gives you that same sort of vibe, especially with the isolation and the references on the monster list. As they get to this cabin, however, they find that things might not necessarily be what they thought. There's scary artwork on the walls. There's one-way glass underneath the scary painting. So it looks like an interrogation room where you can see into the other person's room. And it's very creepy. It's obvious that this is not something that would be built into a normal cabin like this. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, Marty says, oh, it was pioneers, pioneer days. People had to make their own interrogation rooms, <laughs> he says in, in sort of a, a sarcastic way, because they, they don't understand what's happening here at this point. And... They've sort of been warned away from this place by the gas station owner. It's all just sort of very unsettling. Yeah. As they're sort of going through this, they, they sort of put that out of their mind. And they decide that they're just going to get drunk. They're going to have a good time. Everyone's getting along. Uh, Dana was not that familiar with Holden. He, it sort of feels like they're being set up together. In fact, they make reference to that a couple times. But Dana broke up with her teacher right before coming on this trip. So she's not really looking for anything. And Holden is very aware of this. They both are like, oh, they're not very subtle. They sold (laughs) you to me as a wife. It's very funny in in a way that they're like, well, we're going to still try and have a good time, despite the fact that uh, our friends sort of had alternative plans for us. Mm -hmm. They're having this good time, but then all of a sudden the cellar door pops open. And they go down to explore it. They're playing truth or dare. And so they dare Dana to go down into the into the cellar. An interesting bit here, because we've kind of blown past this truth or dare. Jules is like, really, she started to do like this. Looks like it belongs in a club dancing. And Kurt has started getting very alpha male yelly Mm -hmm. at everybody, which is probably the first sign of this subtle change they're all going through. Because Jules also has this making out with a taxidermied wolf thing going on. Right. So just sort of following this, putting them in their archetypes. They feel very different from the people that we met at the beginning of the movie. And that only continues to escalate. I interrupted. Continue. No, no. And so the cellar door pops open and Dana gets dared to go down and explore and she goes down, and there's just all kinds of sort of knickknacks and artifacts down there. There's a music box with a little ballerina on it. There's a wedding dress with, like, a beautiful necklace on it. There is a, uh, like, a conch shell that is <laughs> it's obviously for the mermen. <laughs> Kurt picks it up, and he starts playing with it. But before he can truly blow into it and summon the mermen... Dana starts reading from a journal that she found and she reads the, some Latin from it. And what she says is dolor supervivo caro. You read the Latin. Don't read the Latin. Yes, exactly. 
Big mistake. Big mistake. And in fact, I'm not going to finish reading the Latin. <laughs> but what it means is pain outlives the flesh. Pain raises the flesh. Pain ignites the spirit. Very creepy. Very masochistic. It's pretty messed up. And that ties in with the English that they had read about people getting killed and, and how pain gives uh, this dude a husband bulge. And it's all it's all very messed up. I should also say, at this point, one of, uh, I believe it's Marty, is playing with sort of a little like puzzle box. It looks a lot like the Le Marchand box and Lament configuration from Hellraiser. It's very cool. <laughs> I kind of wish that they had done that one. I know. Uh, I want like eight movies of this, of all of the options. Yeah, that would be very cool. And and you could kind of go backwards in time because, well, you can't go forwards as we'll talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because it's it's all just not Hellraiser enough that it's, it's unique. Later we see the person who would be the Hellraiser guy and he's credited as Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. It's all very Hellraiser-y, you know, sort of angels to some, demons to others, that sort of pain bondage uh, scenario where some people are into it. That sort of people say that that line between pain and pleasure is sort of a razor's edge, and that's a lot of what Hellraiser is about. So it's interesting that he's. It seems like that would be the least explicitly villainous person mm-hmm. uh, in Hellraiser. That's a big discussion about. You know, they are angels to some people because they they only come to people who are calling out to them with their whole spirit and they're searching for something. So I I just think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in Hellraiser Mythos that could really be explored interestingly in a meta-commentary movie like this. But I digress. (laughs) Um, So it turns out that by reading this diary, she summons the zombified Buckner family the angry zombie zombie redneck murder family is I think what they're called. That's pretty close. Yeah. Something to that effect. And I think it's funny and interesting, uh, very coincidental that they summoned the monster with the least amount of makeup required. (laughs) Very convenient. (laughs) Yes. And also uh, congrats to maintenance and Ronald, the intern. They won the betting pool. They in fact picked this family and we see Ronald the intern here, and it's really, he's funny, but I also wonder what that internship is like. Yeah. (laughs) Does he have to do the feeding of all these monsters? Like, uh, he seems sort of innocent at this point, but he must have seen some real shit (laughs) to be uh, in that group, especially to get the grunt work. And how do you put that on your college application? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's it's sort of the yeah, it's an understanding that you'll be hired after the internship. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. As they summon this family, there's a lot of sort of manipulation to make sure that they that they are getting killed. There are pheromones in, uh, induced to get Kurt and Jules to go have sex outside. And specifically to get Jules to take all of her clothes off. Right. They they mention specifically that they're not the only ones watching. You're like, oh, is this part of the reality show that it seems like they're recording? Like, what is it? But they're trying really hard to get things just perfect for Jules and Kurt. She says that she's cold. They turn up the temperature. She says that it's too dark. They sort of turn up the lights outside via moonbeam. Extra sinister Truman Show. (laughs) 
Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, they're talking about how these people are going to die in, in, again, such a matter-of-fact way mm-hmm. that this sort of security guard who showed up, it seems it's his first time there. They tell him that he'll get used to it. And he says, should you? Mm-hmm. Should you be used to this? And this sort of is the beginning of when I start questioning. I, I'll, I'll sort of talk about what I think about this movie and what it's trying to say a little bit later. But this is sort of the beginning of when I started thinking about my theory about it they're fully in this other characters now they are these archetypes now at this point in a way that is noticeable to themselves as well marty says kurt he doesn't he's pulling this alpha male bullshit but he's on a full academic scholarship and he's calling his friend an egghead we've seen jules drunk she's not like this he literally says puppeteers at 37 minutes in, which is correct. He's right. He's hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are puppeteers. They're being totally manipulated. But when Dana says what, he's so high that he just sort of says, Pop-Tarts? <laughs> Do you have Pop-Tarts? And, and so this weed that he's been smoking has expanded his mind in a way that he can sort of see the bigger picture, but it's also made him distractible enough that he's not able to sort of hold the thread in a way that could possibly save them. So as they're having that conversation, uh, they finally start to have sex outside, Kurt and Jules. He says, baby, come on, we're all alone. There's a really ironic moment where he says that, and then it cuts to a room full of dudes staring at this TV screen, waiting for Jules to take off her top. Again, they are like, they're setting it up to be perfect for them. But as they finally start to have sex, the Buckners show up <laughs> and woe to Jules and Kurt because there these is fam- a murder. <laughs> yeah, there is a murder. It, they, the Buckners sort of remind me of Jason Voorhees a little bit. It's, you know, the woodland area and they're zombified and they have sort of these farming tools that sort of call him to mind. It's, it's not a one-to-one thing, but it's also it a little bit a little of that close. one X-Files episode. Um, I think it's called Home, the one that like they showed on TV once and then never happened <laughs> again. Oh, I actually am not familiar with that one. Um, it was a cannibalism episode and like inbred hick murder family. Maybe it wasn't cannibalism, but it was creepy. <laughs> sure, sounds like it. And yeah, so there you go. So there, there, there's another reference that I didn't even get or a possible, possible homage sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they sort of hit Jules with a bear trap. It's it's a really sort of unique weapon. It's like a it's a bear trap on the chain and they throw it at her and it latches onto her and they use it to pull her towards them. And it's really brutal looking and they get like a, a two person saw for like sawing down trees and they slash open her stomach. And it's it's really brutal. And it again sort of cuts to the office guys just watching blankly. Mm-hmm. They say a little prayer, which is interesting as well, because it lets you know that despite them watching it in this, it feels disinterested fashion, They there's something more going on. The prayer doesn't feel like they're just throwing it away. It feels very integral to what they're doing. And so it really... This is sort of where you're like, oh, is this not just like a reality show? Like, what what's happening here? 
no one else knows that this is happening yet at the cabin. And in fact, uh, we see Marty, who is in his room reading. The book is a Little Nemo comic book. And there's more dialogue about sort of seeing past the facade and waking up to reality. He says, Nemo, man, you got to wake up. Your shit is topsy-turvy. There's all this dialogue that references the fact that there's more than what's being seen going on. The sort of feel like they're so close. (laughs) He's so close to figuring out what's happening. As Marty is in there, he breaks the lamp. And finds a little it's a camera. It's something like that. I think it's a camera. Yeah, it's a way for them to spy on him, basically. And he is pulling it down, and he's like, what the fuck is going on? And as he is like inspecting this camera, Judah Buckner comes through the window. And this is, a, this is also part of why they kind of remind me of Jason, because this grab reminds me a lot of the end of Friday the 13th Part 2, when Jason grabs Ginny played by Amy Steele, one of my favorite final girls of all time. She gets grabbed through the window by Jason and pulled out in the same way. And it seems like he gets killed, but nobody nobody knows for sure. And so, like, you don't see him die. You just see him get pulled out. But the office workers assume that he has died, and they sort of pull down on another one of these levers. They pulled one for Jules when she died, and they pull one for Marty it does this creepy ritualistic old feeling thing Mm -hmm. where it starts pouring all this blood down or what looks like blood into these images of people. And what I found interesting here is that this looks it's mechanical. We've got all this high tech electronics upstairs. This looks old. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's very not, and I wouldn't even just say old, I would say ancient. Mm -hmm. Like it, it feels very reminiscent of some of the sacrificial things that we saw in the production credits at the very beginning. And you start to understand that this is its own very complicated sacrifice. Um, It's more than just putting someone on an altar. It's this hugely drawn out process, but it it feels like it's leading to something. Mm -hmm. As people are starting to die, we have Kurt Holden and Dana. And they get back into the RV, and they're driving away, and uh, Sitterson triggers a tunnel collapse to block them in. So they get stuck there. They don't know what they're going to do at this point, and so Kurt decides that what he's going to do is he is going to get on his motorcycle. And Which he's, he's gonna, had the whole time. Yeah, it was like strapped onto the back of the RV, and he is going to jump across the gap between the two sides. And he's going to go get help, and he'll bring he'll bring this help back. And in sort of a very funny setup payoff thing, he also hits the invisible wall. <laughs> he gives this hugely dramatic speech, and then just nails the wall and tumbles. He tumbles down for what feels like a very long time. Mm-hmm. Like you watch him fall down to the water, and it's it's horrific. This sort of you get whiplash from him being like, oh, I'm going to be the hero. And then it's pathetic watching this limp body fall like that. He doesn't even get a horror movie kill. He just gets right. a, no, you may not leave. We find out through conversation in the office that what they're doing is placating these gods. And that it's not just them doing it, that all around the world, there are groups just like these two people and this whole this whole office setting 
that are working to create these other scenarios that would sort of placate these gods. And the other thing we're getting here is that one by one, they're all failing. Yes. So um, at first it's, oh, ha ha, don't worry about it. We've got us in Japan. Nobody's got to worry. Right. Japan has never failed before. This is, in fact, that what they reference when they say that they're number two, they try harder because the U.S. has failed one time and Japan has never failed. So they say that they're they're trying to get back to it. And you find out that Japan has, in fact, failed this one time. And it, it sort of sets that office setting on edge mm-hmm. because now they're the only ones left who can placate these these uh, these gods that are that they're. The men upstairs, as they call it. And And um, for the first time, they seem truly interested and invested in what's going on. Yeah. So as Holden and Dana watch Kurt die, they realize that this is all staged, that Mm -hmm. this is for their benefit. And so when Holden is like, oh, we got to just drive uh, the other direction. We got to just, or we'll get off the roads or anything because Dana is very sort of apathetic. She's like, there's nothing we can do. They're discussing it. And all of a sudden Holden is stabbed in like sort of the head. Like it literally comes from behind him. Mm -hmm. And one of the zombies stabs him and he gurgles in this really gross way. (laughs) And the RV goes over the edge and into the lake. Um, Dana manages to escape the RV. She swims ashore, but she's just attacked again, and she's just getting so beat up. It's really crazy. It looks like she's suffering an insane amount. In fact, it's mentioned by by the lab employees. Um, Bradley Whitford, he gets a little vulnerable and talks about how it sucks that she's been through so much, but they talk about how the virgin's death is actually optional. Um, she she is considered the, the virgin, Dana, despite having had sex because, quote unquote, they work with what they've got. <laughs> <laughs> and she is established as the final girl trope, but they also say that she could die. She doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily need to get away. But what's important is that she's last and that she suffers. Just thinking here that while she's getting beaten up, we mostly watch that through a screen as they start having an office party. Yeah. They're laughing and talking. And for me, this hits one of my horror things of it's not necessarily the monsters that we think of as, you know, the prosthetics and everything. Horror is this reflection of the worst of humanity. Mm-hmm. And these people are having a party and celebrating their good job, having just indirectly murdered four people while a fifth is dying. Right. And it's just this really unsettling scene that none of them seem concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so they're, they're having this party and you're right that it's, it's really sort of grotesque the way that they're celebrating this, this awful thing. But you're, meanwhile, you're like, well, what was it all for? Like, was it even real? Do these gods exist? But their office party is interrupted by a call on a bright red phone. It's very. I wonder what this could mean. Yes, exactly. It's it's very bat signal-y. <laughs> and the office party gets quieted down because they find out that Marty is still alive. They only saw him get dragged off. But if Marty is alive, that means that Dana cannot die yet. I've got to say, 
minor plot annoyance. If they've got all this technology shit, how do they not have like a heart rate monitor on these people? Yeah, this shouldn't knows? have been allowed to happen. But anyway. Yeah, yeah no, you're, you're absolutely right. But it turns out, as they find out that Marty is still alive, so too does Dana. Because he shows up and he hits the Buckner man with his telescoping bong and doesn't really do much, but it's enough to distract him while Dana like yanks up a piece of the dock that she's on and hits him. And they manage to escape from this guy. And Marty says that he found a way, like he found this lab, basically. He, he found an elevator and he thinks that he can control it and that they'll be able to escape because all that they know is that they can't go the way they came. And so all, like, all that, the only option that's left for them is to go down into this uh, lab. Mm-hmm. And as they're going through this elevator, you realize that it's the elevator that the Buckners came up on. And so they pass through this really fun scene where you're just seeing all these different monsters that some that were referenced on the board, some that are just like random stuff. There's some of the zombies from the Left for Dead franchise are in these little uh, cages in there. And Dana realizes by seeing Fornicus, the the guy I mentioned before, the Hellraiser guy, that they chose the way that they were going to die. And that if Marty had finished uh, opening up the puzzle, that it would have been Fornicus. And that if he had blown into the conch, that it would have been the merman. And because she's the one who read from the diary that she brought the Buckners there. And she's really kind of distraught and they, they don't really know what they're going to do now at this point. And so they're just sort of like hugging in this elevator, trying to like bring themselves to grip with what's happening. And in a, again, it's, it's very convenient in a way that it works for the plot, but it also still feels relatively natural. The door opens and there's a security guard there who like has a gun on them because they're trying to kill Marty now at At, this point. At this point, they need to finish the ritual. So this whole thing is kill Marty. Don't kill Dana until Marty's dead. Yeah. And he, he, because he's hugging her, he's sort of using her as a human shield. And as he's trying to like talk them away from each other, he gets distracted and uh, gets knocked out and, he falls in there, and it's funny because you see a, a zombie arm that had gotten separated from one of the Buckners just sort of, like, crawl onto his face as uh, as he's laying there. And you don't know what happens to him, but it's, it's very creepy because this hand is still active. It, it could kill him, but it would be very difficult, and it doesn't seem like it would be a very nice way to die. Mm-mm. So I, I feel bad for that one particular security guy. But as... Marty and Dana are kind of going through this lab. They are being pursued by a ton of security guards. And so they take cover in this little room and they notice that there's a system purge button. They hit this button and every monster that they have in captivity comes out and starts killing everyone. It's hilariously (laughs) over the top. This is such a cool scene. There really should be some safeguards on that button, yeah. but nobody asked me to design it for them. That's right. Uh, and and they pay the price for it. 
<laughs> it's massacre is the only way to describe it. You get to see a lot of these monsters in motion. It's a lot of fun. You see the molesting tree. You see a flying purple people eater. You see all kinds of cool stuff. And you, you see a unicorn stab somebody with a horn. But most importantly, you see the merman. The merman comes and he eats Bradley Whitford's face in a very ironic moment. And it's very funny. And he's like, oh, come on. <laughs> and... They, the merman has like a blowhole on his back and just shoots up a ton of blood. And one of the things I actually heard from the commentary is that that scene of the blood shooting up, they were like, all right, just use the rest of the blood that we have. And oh, so no. it's like nine minutes long. There's like a nine minute version of that scene. And they wound up using just like the last 10 seconds of it because that's when it sort of starts to putter out and, and it's coming out. of blood. Yes, exactly. And and so uh, imagining how much is there in the nine minute version is laughable, but it's very effective and still funny the way that it, it kind of pans out. Marty and Dana sort of continue to descend into the depths of this lab and they find these huge pillars that have these designs on them that they realize reference each of the archetypes. Dana says, this is us. And... As they're sort of sitting there, uh, Sigourney Weaver shows up. I can't believe they got Sigourney Weaver, and she's perfect. Yeah, you and me both. I also couldn't believe it when she showed up the first time. And uh, she's great in it. She's perfect in every way. Yeah, she lends a ton of gravitas to it. And when she's telling them, she basically explains what's happening. She says that this is the only way that they've been doing this forever. There's It's worldwide. You have to appease the ancient ones and each region has its own ritual and that they need to do theirs. They're the last one. And as she's explaining this to them, she sort of gets through to Dana and Dana picked up a gun at some point during their, uh, I believe from the first, um, Marty actually handed it to her. Right. She stabbed the guy and he said, it's easier with this and gave her the gun. Right, right, exactly. Yes. And so she has this gun and Sigourney Weaver says that Marty needs to die in order for this to work. And slowly Dana aims the gun at Marty. And, but she's she's not she's not willing to do it, really. But she she's trying to convince herself. Mm-hmm. And Marty sees out of the corner of his eye that there's a werewolf who is is kind of coming towards them as one of the monsters who escaped. And a lot of stuff sort of happens all at once. Dana is attacked by this werewolf, which distracts her long enough for Marty to get away from it and her. And Patience Buckner, who is one of the zombies, uh, manages to get on top of the director and kill her. Now, I thought it was really interesting that the werewolf just kind of gets to scamper away because despite Dana uh, shooting at this thing many times, uh, they're not silver bullets. So it makes sense that it would just get to walk away. They decide basically that humanity is not worth saving. And so they sit down and they light up a joint and they just sort of await their fate. And all of a sudden... The temple floor collapses. There's a giant hand comes up out of out of basically nowhere 
and it destroys the facility in the cabin. And that's the end of the movie. They literally destroyed the world at the end of this movie. In a way that sort of reminds me of Hereditary, where it's very nihilistic in a way, where it's they're like, well, this is just the way it is. At the end of Hereditary, there's a king of hell that's on Earth now. At the end of this, there's these elder gods who are coming out of nowhere to destroy everything. Whoops. And yeah, exactly. And it's it's sort of pessimistic, but it's also sort of like calming, where they're just like, well, sometimes you have to just accept things. Yeah. How do you feel about this ending? Disappointed by it? Do you think that it's it's satisfying? I think that for what we've set up, it's satisfying and it makes sense with, I think, what the movie is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Now, it feels very appropriate to me right now with all the horror that is going on in our actual world right. and how, for most people, life is going on and you were sort of ignoring all these things that are going on that are powering being just in a normal life in a way that these guys in the office just following orders are murdering people. I don't know if you at all want to get political on your podcast, but horror is political in a lot of ways. It's dealing with our fears as a culture. So for me, setting up this, if this is what we have to do to survive, is it worth it? Is it acceptable? And the movie, I think, is saying, no, we if this is what we're doing, we need to stop and let it happen and not be doing so much harm to save ourselves. Right. And, I yeah, think that's a... really very, uh, very poignant. I think that you've, you've really kind of hit the nail on the head there. And there's maybe a greater good argument to be made, these five kids versus the entire world. But you also have this whole office of people who just don't care about murdering anymore. Yeah. Which is a problem. We should probably care about murdering. Sure. Uh, well, but, so to that point, I, I let me, uh, we've reached the end here now. So let me give you my theory and I want to hear what you think about it. Mm-hmm. And then I want to tell you about the things I think are really cool about this. And then I will let this end. <laughs> yeah, no, perfect. Well, because at the end, we'll, we'll talk about why ex- pre- precisely this is the best horror movie. Okay. So my theory is as follows, that we are the Elder Gods, us as viewers. I think that a lot of the sort of, should you get used to this, are these things that we're doing okay? A lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we as viewers, for fun, are watching these people get murdered. When you think that it's a reality TV show, you're like, oh, who are these psychopaths who would be watching it? But it's us. We're the ones who are watching it. And... When they're talking about should you get used to it, especially like when Kurt dies, like I laughed when Kurt dies and he hits that wall. That's not a normal reaction to someone's death. And I think that they're saying like, is is watching these things harmful for us? It, despite the fact that they clearly enjoy horror, I think that they're looking at it from kind of a critical perspective and going, is this something that we should be doing? Should this bloodshed and violence be something that we're used to just from being exposed to it so often and when they say that if not everybody dies or if we don't get to see the 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 boobs when she's going outside to have sex uh, with jules's boobs you know th- that these are things that are sort of considered must-haves in a horror movie people go to them for blood and boobs basically and 
when you don't get that, people are disappointed by the movie. They walk out. They're not happy with it. It doesn't do well at the box office necessarily. And the world dies because they're, they don't get a sequel. And so it's it, it, we're, we're destroying them and killing literally everyone in that world. Because if the story doesn't continue, then all of those people are dead despite the fact that outside of these five and the office, there could be an entire world full of people. We don't see them, but there's no sequel to Captain in the Woods. So we just, they're just all gone forever. All those people who are living in this fleshed out world. And Mm so I wonder what you think about it, sort of commentating on the genre as a whole. Do you think I'm off base? Do you you think that I've kind of hit on something here? I think you've definitely hit on something here, and it's definitely a question about whether are we desensitized to death? Are we, what is this doing to our world? If we see it in the media, do we then ignore it in our lives? Yeah, and uh, to go back to the the part where they're having the celebration, it looks like they're having a party and there's just a horror movie on in the background, which is something a lot of people do. And they, they're sort of discussing what happens like it's a horror movie. Someone explicitly says, classic denouement. When the van hits the lake, I screamed. And the water rushing in and the zombie, they're talking about it like it's a movie. Mm-hmm. The way that you and I talk about this movie. And so I, I think that it's it's sort of meta in a way that it's breaking down the tropes. But I think it's, it's also meta in a way that it is explicitly discussing the genre and its impact on people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, audience, weigh in. Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think about this. Am I crazy? <laughs> do, you, do you have a better idea? Uh, let me know. But we've talked about a lot about what makes it great. But Sarah, why is this the best horror movie ever made? So, why it's the best horror movie ever made? Definitely the commentary on the genre and the sort of the tropes that are given extra meaning based on within the movie. Uh, it also hit on something very specific that's in my wheelhouse, which is this highly controlled, fascinating environment of the inside of this sort of Hunger Games-esque dome that also makes me want to know more about the world. I'm interested. I want movies about all the times it went right. I want to see all these monsters. I want to see the ins and outs of how they manipulate everything. I want to see how they got to this point because we've got this ancient thing down below. It didn't always have all the electricity. I'm a, I'm a game person. I also would love to play this game of setting up the perfect horror movie. That, that sounds very fun. Yeah. So I would love to take control of this institute. So for me, it hit a lot of my very specific wheelhouse buttons. Uh, along with fascinating commentary, clever writing, and just a fresh take on the genre as a whole. You think you know what you're getting into with a cabin movie, and then we have this whole other layer on it that, oh, I'm going to go see The Cabin in the Woods, I'm going to see a bunch of teenagers get murdered, I'm going to see some boobs, but there's something more here. And I think that's really interesting and something... All genres need these movies that refresh the genre and kind of poke at it. And I think this does that really well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because as it's aged, I think that its points about horror have only gotten more pointed. I think that 
a lot of horror movies that have been coming out recently are not necessarily just the blood and boobs slasher sort of stuff. That's sort of gone out of style, and I, I wonder... It, 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 this movie makes me curious about how the evolution of horror would impact this world. It, it feels like a lived-in world, and the lore around it is fascinating to me, which I, I think that you mentioned it is for you as well. And, like, they talk about that they used to just be able to throw a girl in a volcano, and yeah. now they have this trope, this folklore, that our cultural impact is what's defining these rituals. We see the little glimpse we get of Japan. We see the Japanese horror movies in that classroom where there's these little girls. Yeah. It's different in every culture and our culture is impacting this. And I just, I want to know everything about it. Right. There's, there's sort of a cyclical nature to it. And the A and B plots converge in a way that is really interesting, but doesn't, doesn't lessen either of them. The A-plot is is a classic slasher movie, which I am a big fan of, and the B-plot is a very interesting sort of paranoia-controlled, like, a government conspiracy sort of movie. And it all merges in a way that is satisfying to me. I think that the ending is very good. I think that it is satisfying because it's sort of been leading up to it this entire time, and it feels like things are breaking down the entire time. There are glitches that happen. Marty is sort of aware just because he's high. Like there's all these little pieces that make it feel like this is a legitimate thing that happened, that this ending uh, should shake out this way. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the writing. I think it's Mm -hmm. really excellently written. The comedy does not take me out of it, which is not something that can be said for every horror movie. And I think that the performances are all very good. I think that having, I don't want to call them unknowns, but at the time they were certainly, they were unknowns for the A-plot. And having these uh, distinguished character actors, you know, and Sigourney Weaver in the B-plot sort of lends a credence to both sides where it feels more real because of it. And so, yeah, it all just works in a way that I find extremely satisfying. It's funny. And uh, there's a lot of great monsters in it and you get to kind of go back through and pick them out and go like, Oh, I recognize that guy or I understand this reference. And it makes you feel good about the genre. Like there's, there's so much influence in it from other stuff Mm -hmm. that you're like, wow, horror really has had an enormous impact on culture, and there's so many lasting icons from it that there's all these different ways that they could have picked to die, and they're all their own interesting way that that could have been its own movie. So that's why it's the best horror movie ever made to me. Yeah, it's a commentary on horror, but at the same time, a love letter to it. Yes, absolutely. Sarah, I want to thank you for your patience. This was a a pretty long episode, so thanks for dealing with me. Uh, No, no, thank you. Um, Do you have anything that you want to plug before we head out? I guess just that if you... I mostly talk about yarn and video games and Critical Role, but if you want to talk about those things on the internet, I'm either Mostly Harmless Designs or Harmless Crochet on Twitter. 
Well, you should also you should check out Sarah's crochet. She does really awesome work at Mostly Harmless Designs. A lot of really awesome uh, Pokemon stuff, but she also does a lot of Cthulhu stuff as well, which is really awesome. So if you're into horror um, and you're looking for something, definitely check out her crochet work. It's really great. As far as me, you can find me on Twitter at GergHef. You can follow the show at uh, Little Horror PHL. And uh, yeah, follow along. I'm, I hope that people reach out and let me know what they think about that theory of mine. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, if you think if you think I'm crazy, let me know that as well. Um, <laughs> I can take it. So, uh, thanks for coming on, Sarah. I had a great time, and thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah. Bye. Bye.